Good morning, everyone. Hope you have a wonderful day. We continue where we left off. The last few words in the bottom of page 7b. Tractate in the daughter in the first chapter. Another thing of Gidl said in the name of Rav. We continue. And how do we know? How do we know you're allowed to swear to fulfill a mitzvah? Like swearing you're going to put on tefillin. So besides the obligation, the biblical obligation to put on tefillin, you also have an oath, an added obligation. And therefore, if you don't put on tefillin, you have to bring uh, the special, uh, the variable uh, sin offering, the carbonyl of the because it's a false oath. In other words, if you didn't do a mitzvah, you didn't take an oath, you don't have to bring a sin offering. But here, since the, the, oath, the oath applies, so how do we know this? It says, it says in Tilip, chapter 119, Nishbaiti, I swore by Kayema, and I kept it, Lishmer, to keep Mishpatet Sitkecha, to fulfill your mitzvahs. What do you mean? You're already uh, sworn already at Har Sinai to keep all the mitzvahs. So you can't make a personal oath on top of it. You're, you're already sworn. In Har Sinai, every Jew that will ever live is included in that oath. Every neshama was present at Har Sinai. The entire Jewish people, including every one of us, took an oath to keep all 613 mitzvahs. And therefore... It says in the Mishnah Shavuos, if you, if you take an oath to fulfill a mitzvah and you don't fulfill it, you're exempt from an offering. Because the, the oath does not apply. Speaking about an oath, it's only talking about something that's, that's not inherently forbidden or commanded. You're volunteering, you're adding something. It's right, so so the oath doesn't take effect biblically. It doesn't take an effect. So why, what does Rabbi Gidel Amadav saying? His, his intent couldn't have couldn't have meant that yes, you don't bring a sin offering if you violate your oath and you don't put on tefillin, let's say. But you're violating the prohibition. Thou shall not swear falsely. You can't mean that because then he should have said clearly that although you don't bring a sin offering, it's not like a regular oath. But nevertheless, it does take effect that you have an oath. You have an additional obligation. Besides the obligation that you already took upon yourself at Sinai to keep the mitzvahs, you have additional obligation. You took an oath to keep your oath and to put on tefillin. He doesn't say that. It must mean that it does take an effect, fully effect. That not only do you have to fulfill the oath, but you also, if you violate the oath, you have to bring a sacrifice. But we know it's a, we know that it's not so. That you're already sworn at Sinai, and therefore the oath does not apply, is not effective. Ella rather, hakamash malon. This is what Rabbi Gidlamanav is teaching us. He's not that it takes effect as an oath. It has no legal validity. But he wants to motivate himself to do a mitzvah by taking an oath. Because when you take an oath, it's a commitment. It's serious. So you're committing yourself. The Hebrew word of the word oath is mujbat, like you're satiating, you're giving yourself extra force, extra strength, because you know you're going to encounter difficulty. You want to do a good deed, 
You want to do, you fulfill your obligations, but you know how difficult it is. So you take an oath, and this gives you that extra push, that extra oomph to, to cross the finishing line and to do the right thing. So he's saying you're allowed to do that. It's not an oath in vain. It's from King David. King David says, I swore to keep your mitzvahs. How are you allowed to swear to keep mitzvahs? You're swearing Hashem in vain? Yes, to motivate yourself. So it's a, not only are you not saying Hashem's name in vain, but you're actually, it's commendable. Like David Amela wouldn't say Hashem's name, but he swore to, to motivate himself. When you make a pledge, you make a commitment, if you take an oath, you motivate. But when you're doing a mitzvah, you're already obligated. When you take an oath, it motivates you. Another thing, whoever says, Ashkim ve'eshn. I'm going to wake up early. I'm going to come to the Kail. Come 6.45. I'm going to learn this chapter. I will study this chapter. He vowed a great vow to Hashem, to the God of Israel. He's, he's expressing, he's saying, neder, um, but it's really an oath. It's, it, it's, it's swearing, it's not a nether. An oath is on the object. We already learned in the first page. Oath is on the object. Swearing is personal. I'm committing myself. I'm committing myself to learn this tractate, to wake up early, to come to the coil early. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a promise. That's a commitment. That, that's a shavua. Saying, I swear that I'm going to rise early and study this chapter. So, so it's interchangeable. Neder, in this case, Neder and Shavuah, he's using it just in, interchangeable. But he really means a Shavuah. Well, maybe the person making that... He's already swore at Sinai that he has to study Torah. So how can you, how can you swear? How can you make another oath? You can't have one oath take, a, take effect on, on, on another oath. Language of Gidlo Madava would seem that the oath takes effect, it's effective. And you have to bring a sin offering if you violate it. If you don't wake up early and you don't study the chapter, you don't study the tractate. But the question is, you already swore at Sinai to learn day and night. And it says, we say in the Shema, Vishinantam Levanecha, you have to be thoroughly versed. Shinantam means it has to be sharp. You have to know your Torah like sharp. You have to know it clearly, understand it. So, of course, that means you have to wake up early to achieve that, and you have to learn the chapter, and you have to learn the tractate. Mm-hmm. So, how, how does it take an effect? So, Micah Mashma, what could Rav Gidl mean? If he's coming to teach us that, you want to motivate yourself. He's repeating the same thing he said earlier. That's the first thing he said. That a person can swear to do a mitzvah. Why is learning Torah any different? It's also a mitzvah to learn Torah and to learn day and night and to learn uh, sharp, to know, you, to know it uh, clearly and sharply. So what's, Rav Gidl, what's the second statement of Gidl of Av, Amadav adding to the first statement? So you might answer, is coming to teach us a person could exempt himself from the oath by reciting the Shema in the morning, reciting the Shema in the evening. You fulfill the obligation of studying Torah day and night. It's an obligation. Every Jew has to study Torah day and night. But reading the Shema, saying the words, which are words of the Torah, you fulfill your obligation of studying Torah. So you would think, you would think that, that is, so I've done my obligation. 
So that's why therefore the oath does take effect. Mm-hmm. Does take effect. He's taking upon himself to learn more than just the bare minimum of saying Shema in the morning and Shema in the evening. Mm-hmm. Reading of the Shema, talking about Torah. You should learn Torah in the morning and the evening. Now, when you say the Shema, you're reading Torah. You're hitting two birds with one stone. You're reading Torah, but the Torah is telling you fulfill the mitzvah of reading Torah by reading this specific chapter, this specific verse, not any part of Torah. This specific verse. Some say it's rabbinic. That's what it means. Some that that's what someone to learn when the rabbis say that Shema is rabbinic. What do you mean Shema is rabbinic? It's clearly that it's biblical. It's a clear obligation. What he means rabbinic, that's what the Shagas Ari wants to argue, what he means rabbinic means that the rabbi said, how do you fulfill the biblical obligation of studying Torah? I can read any chapter and verse in the Torah. By the rabbis say, no, fulfill that obligation by reading this paragraph of the Shema that tells you to study Torah day and night, in the morning and the evening. But so when I'm learning, when I'm reading the Shema, I'm fulfilling the mitzvah of studying Torah. You to read the Shema because it has so much the faith, Shema Yisrael, the ultimate Jewish faith, and to love Hashem, and it's so essential in learning Torah, the obligation to learn Torah. Others say, no, it's biblical. The Torah is commanding us to read this specific paragraph. So that's the argument with this biblical rabbin. Now, does it really mean that you can fulfill your obligation of studying Torah by reading Shema? If it takes you a second to read the Shema, half a minute, mm-hmm. and then you're done. Torah says you have to learn Torah day and night. What do you mean? Mm-hmm. Is, is that what it really means? It's Vishinantam. You have to know it. You have to be. You have to know it sharply, clearly, crystal clear in your mind. You can't accomplish it by saying a word for a second and a half, a half a minute in the morning, half a minute at night. According to some opinions, just saying the first sentence it's enough. Shema Yisrael, I'm done. That's it. I'm, I can close the books because because. At the end of the day, this is what the Torah says explicitly. This is what's written. You should speak these words in the morning when you wake up, when you go to sleep. That's it. So I said the Shema, I'm done. The rabbis say, no, Vishnamta means you have to learn it thoroughly and you have to learn it well and you have to learn day and night. Every opportunity, every waking moment you have and every opportunity you have. And if a person is capable, you have to learn all day and night. If you're capable of learning Torah 24 hours and you only learn 23 hours and 59 minutes, you wasted your time in Torah. But that that's not, doesn't say clearly in the Torah. That is the rabbis, the oral Torah, expounds and explains. But clearly, minimally, what I swore at Sinai is what's written. This is what it says. Speak words of Torah in the morning and night. I said, Shema, I'm done. It says that you can't take an oath, a second oath, on top of another oath. That only applies to an oath that stated the words that are stated explicitly in the Torah. That's the oath that we took at Sinai. Uh-huh. We took at Sinai the words that it states, it states explicitly in the Torah. So that you can't make an oath to fulfill... To, right. Okay. Make an oath on something it doesn't say explicitly, that I'm going to learn, wake up early, and I'm going to learn this chapter, and learn and learn the distracted, yeah. then the oath does apply. Yeah. say that the reason why the oath applies here, what he means here, yes, I'm obligated to learn Torah. But it doesn't tell me I'm obligated to learn this chapter or this particular tractate. I can learn anything. So I'm making an oath that I'm going to fulfill my obligation to study Torah by specifically learning this chapter or learning this tractate. That's binding. That, that I didn't take it sign that I'm going to learn this. I can fulfill my obligation by learning anything. 
Let's wake up early and study this chapter. All of Lahashkim is obligated to wake up early, earlier than his French. And it says in Ezekiel, and he said to me, Arise, go out to the valley, and I will speak to you. Nicheskel says, I went to the valley, and behold, in the glory of Hashem was standing. So the Shechina, Hashem, came before him. So if you tell your friend, let's wake up, the one who's, who's instigating it, he has to be the first one there. It can't be the second one. He has to come first. That's, that's the commitment that he made. Let us, by you taking the initiative, you have to lead by example. You want to tell someone else to do something, the mother is saying what it means is you're committing yourself to be the example, the role model, to be the first one there. Like Abraham. Part of your oath. That's your commitment. It's not a suggestion. This is part of your... He's telling us also another thing. He never used the language, I swear, or I take an oath. He just says, let us go, let us wake up and do something good together. So he says it's binding. Rav says, when you say, I'm going to do a mitzvah, that's why anytime you say, you say I'm going to do a mitzvah, you have to say, bli neder. If you don't say, bli neder, the fact that you're taking upon yourself to do a good deed, that has the power of a neder and an oath. It's a serious commitment. You don't play games here. But I never said I'm swearing. It doesn't matter. So he says, if he says, I'm taking a nether, so, the, the, so even though a nether doesn't apply, that was the previous thing we said, because a nether doesn't apply because a nether is the object. Here we're not talking about an object, we're talking about a commitment. I'm going to wake up early to learn this chapter, I'm going to wake up early to learn this chapter. What he means is, I'm swearing. Fine, it's a personal commitment. But here he's not saying a nether, he's not saying geshvur. The moment beficha, the moment you take a pledge in your mouth, you verbalize, I'm going to do tzedakah or do any mitzvah, mm-hmm. that becomes binding. Mm. That becomes binding. Wow. Unless you clearly say bli nether. Hmm. And more so, I think it says, I think three times, even if you don't say it, it becomes already binding, unless you say bli nether. If you do something good three times, do a mitzvah, good thing. If you do it three times, back to the subject of excommunication. If he excommunicated someone in his dream, he had a dream that he was being excommunicated. You need a minion to, to nullify the excommunication. Because because maybe Hashem, yeah, maybe Hashem is giving him a message. I don't know how you were excommunicated. It's a message. No, a dream. You had a dream. You have to take a dream seriously. I wasn't thinking about excommunication. Suddenly I had a dream and I'm excommunicated. Maybe it's a message from an high that Hashem is excommunicating you. But you don't take any chances. They're excommunicating above and they're letting you know you better take it seriously. So therefore, you should do it. You have nothing to lose. Take ten people and, and just nullify it. Why do you need minion? Why do you need minion? You need a minion because when there's a minion, there's a shechina is present. You need the shechina to be present because if the shechina put you in, who excommunicated you? No one in this world excommunicated you. It was the shechina in heaven. 
So therefore, you need 10 people to draw the Shekhinah down to nullify the, the excommunication. Before you nullify the excommunication, do you have to follow the excommunication? Do you have to let people know, don't sit next to me, stay away from me, I've been excommunicated or not? We know dreams have no substance. You can't follow, halachically, you don't follow dreams. If someone comes and says, so we, have, we, we learned this, if, if someone comes to a dream, a father came to his son in a dream, <coughs> and he says, I buried this money here, and so and so, and this money belongs to so and so. The rabbi say, keep the money. It's very nice, your father told you where the money is buried, but you're not obligated to listen. Dreams have no substance. I'm not obligated to listen to him. You know, it's your money, enjoy it. So why, so over here, you don't really have to follow the dream. <coughs> Even if you say that he doesn't have to keep this nidui, he doesn't have to follow it halachically, but nevertheless, just in case, maybe it is a message from an high. So do something about it. Bring a minion and, and nullify, nullify the dream. Oh, the Tani Hilchis, uh, we're talking about 10 people, qualified minion, Torah scholars. Have a mass People who just recite the Mishnah but don't study the Talmud. Uh, how much more so people who don't even study the Mishnah law they're, they're not fit to nullify the excommunication even though whenever there's ten Yidin together the Shechina is present nevertheless you have to be very worthy here you're cancelling an excommunication that comes from an high you have to be worthy some say it's not only you, they themselves learn Talmud but they teach Talmud you have to have ten teachers Torah scholars who are teachers he lacked the but if he can't find ten people who study Talmud, I feel a massive even ten people who study Mishnah. He lacked if he can't even find that laser, well, laser, let him go to the crossroad. Let him may say peace, hello to ten people who are passing by, and they will say peace unto you. This will protect them in the meanwhile. Ten Jews. I'm telling you, pizza to you, it has force, it has power. You say, Shalom Aleichem, and the Jew responds, Aleichem Shalom. Ten Jews say, Aleichem Shalom. It has force, it has power. Ten Jews blessed you. Not sufficient to nullify, but it's sufficient to protect you until you find ten Jews who could nullify you. This is at the end of, end of the Talmud. If he knows who excommunicated him in the dream, could that person lift the excommunication for him? In other words, in his dream, he dreamt that a, a certain individual placed him and excommunicated him. So therefore, is that person empowered to cancel it? Because usually the one who places you in excommunication, he has the power to, to lift the excommunication. If it was one individual who excommunicated you, he has the power to lift it. So Amalei's Ravashi responded to Ravina, excommunicate, they made the person an agent. But to lift the excommunication didn't make him an agent. It was all from heaven. So the, the heaven, the vision in heaven was that this person excommunicated him, but it wasn't really him. So they just made him an agent. He's, he's excommunicating him in the name of heaven. But to lift it, you need heaven itself, you need the shechin itself. So for that, you need ten. All the excommunication, it was from heaven. No person on earth ever excommunicated. It was all in his dream. 
So if it's heaven, no person has the authority or the power to lift it, unless you have a minion and a minion of Torah scholars. Hmm. The excommunicated the person and nullified the excommunication in his dream. My, in his dream, he was excommunicated. And in his dream, he also dreamt that, that, that they, they nullified the excommunication. Just like it's impossible to have grain without chaff, we continue in side B. It's impossible to have a dream without some nonsense mixed into it. Even a meaningful dream has a little shaft in it. So maybe the part that we were excommunicated, that's the meaningful part, that's real. The nonsense is that it was lifted. So you, so you, you, you can't lend it any credence. You can't, it's not enough. If the person dreams that he himself made an oath in his dream, do you have to undo the oath, release him from the oath? Zidane says, no, no. Excommunication, he had a dream, that means he was excommunicated in heaven. That's why it has force and validity. But an oath, unless you verbally say the oath, it means nothing. So if you had it in your dream, you took an oath upon yourself, you don't have to follow the oath, you don't have to release it. It's inconsequential. But he says others argue. Others say no. That if you dreamt that you took an oath, you have to, it's binding and you have to release it when you wake up. No, release an oath, you don't need ten people. Not excommunication. An oath. You dreamt that you took an oath. Yeah. Ravina's wife made an oath. And she wanted to nullify it. Also, the Ravachi, she came before Ravachi, Yomalei, and said to Ravachi, Baal Mashi, Yasashlil, Kharatisisht. Could a husband be an agent to go to the rabbi, the Chacham, to, to, to untie the vow, to release the vow? He only can, he needs that if he if his passes the expiration date. No, 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 no. She made a vow and he regrets it. She regrets it. No, it's a vow that's binding to him. Why does he have to go to a basin? He can just... Uh, no, you have to go in front of the Chacham. Only a Chacham could release a vow. Oh, let's say it's a type of vow that the husband has no authority on. Well, let's say the husband agreed with the vow, but then she wants to undo the vow. You go to the Chacham and you undo it as if it never happened. Could I, could I send my husband as an agent? Usually, agency works in Judaism. An agent represents the principal. Could my husband represent me and tell you why I regret that I ever made this vow in the first place? So... So Ravina came and asked, I want, my, I want to release my wife's vow. She's asking, she's appointing me as an agent. Yeah. So Ravina said to Ravina, if, if they were previously assembled, then the husband could act as his wife's agent. If it's Eloi, they were assembled there, but if he's going to assemble them loy just for this purpose, then then he can't be his wife's agent. We have different ways of interpreting the mother. Right, we're talking about a wife who took an oath, the husband did not nullify it, he only has till the end of the day. And you go, she wants, she regrets it, and she wants to go to the Chacham to release it, to undo it as if it never happened. So usually, the Rambam says he cannot make an agent, even though in general in the Torah agency works, not in this case. You can't make an agent. You yourself, the one who made the vow themselves, has to appear before the rabbis 
to release it. But a husband is different. Because a husband and a wife are like one. So when the husband goes, it's as if the wife goes. So actually, he makes a distinction. If they were already gathered, fine. Yeah, but if, if no, they, they were happened to be, no, he didn't have to gather them. They were sitting, a group was sitting together, and he just approaches them. But if, but if, but because it's, since it's irregular, it's not, no, because usually an agency doesn't help. So if he has to go and collect and gather them, we say we don't make any leniency for the husband. That's the way that Ambam understood it. Others understand the Gemara differently, that an agency does help. It's the husband that, that it doesn't help. Because we're worried the husband, the husband wants to release his wife's vows. So he'll exaggerate a little. It's in his interest. Yeah, it's in his interest. And he'll exaggerate a little. And he won't be, he won't be faithful. To, he won't tell us the truth about what the level of a regret is, why she regrets it, if it's, if it's genuine. So if they happen to be there already is one thing. But if he has to go and collect them, and he has to exert effort to collect them. So between the fact that he wants to release his wife and he had to also exert effort, he's going he's gonna to exaggerate. He's not going to give us a faithful <laughs> rendering of what, what happened, what his wife said, what his wife is thinking. We learned from this three things. We learned, a husband could be an agent to convey to the rabbis his wife's regret, to release the vow. Another thing we learned from this, you can't nullify a nether in the place of the teacher or if there's a superior sage in the area otherwise Ravina would have done it himself his own wife but since he was in the place of Ravashi he had to ask Ravashi he didn't just do it on himself how, how, how could he have done it himself a person can't you know you, you and your wife are like one so you can't, you're disqualified. The husband, even if he's the greatest rabbi, is disqualified from, from, from releasing his wife's, his wife's oath. So, so that's, only, that's only if he's doing it by himself. But if, the, if there's, another, there's a panel of three, then he's, he's qualified. So if, so if not for Ravashi, he would have just called two other rabbis with him and he, and he would have done it, released it himself. We learn a third thing. If they were assembled already, then it's acceptable for the husband to be his wife's agent. Then he says, then the Gemara says, by releasing someone from excommunication, a sage is allowed to um, cancel the excommunication even if his teacher is there. Even if his master is there. Why? Because what if the master is not available? You can't leave a Jew in a, in a state of excommunication if he's worthy of being released. You can't wait an extra minute. You can't leave a Jew being, being excommunicated even for an extra second. An oath, I'll wait, I'll wait till, till, till the master is available. It's, not, it's not, not the end of the world. But with excommunication, you can't wait. Another thing the Gemara says, even a single expert could release excommunication. In other words, if a person was excommunicated for a reason, he violated uh, law and then he did shuva, so any expert sage could nullify the excommunication. You don't need the one who imposed the excommunication that he should be the one to release. And even the panel of three laymen could also nullify 
the uh, the excommunication. Dan says when he says a yachid mumcha, some say that means only someone who has smicha in the land of Israel, which today we don't have smicha. That means other rabbi. Ran says no, it's not true. Any rabbi who's an expert in the dar. On the other hand, the many people say today you don't have a rabbi as an expert. Most rabbis, with all due respect, are not experts. <laughs> It's important, the line, the chain of transmission. Who heard it from who and who heard it from who. Who the original uh, author of the statement is, the one who said this, Maidil Siv, it says, It says in Malachi, the last prophet. What is it? It says, And they shall also shine for you, those who fear my name, a son of righteousness. So what do you, who's the title referring to? The, who's, the, who's the Navi referring to? Those who fear Hashem's name. Those who are afraid to say Hashem's name in vain. Hashem is a son of righteousness with healing in its rays. Here we learn. The dust of the sun heals. The dust of the day. These are tiny dust particles that are visible in a ray of sunlight. Right? When you see the sunlight streaming through the window, you see the, the dust. So he says the ray of the sun has a power to cure you. What's the connection to dust? Yes, it means when the sun is shining, you can see the dust. But it's not the dust. It's the it's the uh, not chilge the yemimasi. It's the ray. It's the shine of the sun. The ray of the sun that's healing. The mashot the mashot says that it's not the, the heat of the sun. It's because the sun moves so quickly that it creates the heat. So it's the heat. It's the heat, not the ray of the sun. It's the heat that uh, that cures. So what does that have to do with the dust? Referring to the Torah scholars who are weak, you know, the Torah weakens them. So for them, it's the dust that heals them. But someone who's really sick, it's the ray of the sun itself. Anyway, yeah. okay. Okay. interpretation argues with Rabshim who said, There's no Gehenim in the world to come. He doesn't mean after death, he means when Mashiach comes. After the resurrection of the dead. So then there won't be any hell. Hashem will remove the sun out of its sheath. Tzadikim, global warming. Tzadikim, the righteous will be healed. Then we'll have real global warming. The righteous will be healed by it. The wicked will be punished through it. That's what he interprets the verse. That then Hashem will sign the ray of the sun, will heal. And uh, those who fear my name, those are the righteous. The continues. And not only this, the righteous will delight in the sun. You will need sun pen lotion. It says, it says in that verse 
and you who fear my name will go out and flourish like calves fattened in the stall the wicked will be punished by it behold the day is coming burning like an oven all they'll be like straw and it will burn them up they will be destroyed by it the wicked the global warming alarmist tomorrow we'll start the Mishnah on page 9a have a wonderful day